Well, church, again, good morning. And uh, I am really grateful to be back. So last week, I wasn't able to be here. My wife and I were celebrating 10 years of marriage. Yeah, that's right. It was an amazing time. It was an amazing time. I'm so grateful for this church. I'm excited to be back this morning, though, because we get to start into a brand new book. I cannot wait for this journey as we go through the book of Job together. Um, But as we begin, I wanted to kind of give you something before we actually dive in. Uh, So as we go through this book, it's a wonderful book. Um, It's going to bring up a lot of questions. And so as we go through this book, my heart was, my hope was to provide you guys with some resources if you wanted them um, for you to have on your own that you can dive in, you can go maybe a little deeper than, than, here's my hope, that we are able to take what happens here and bring it home with us, and that as a church, we honestly wrestle with God's word throughout our week. And so I wanted to provide you with uh, some resources, and the way I did this is if you go to stoneoakbible.com resources, um, what we've done here is we've attached several resources to this page that go directly, um, that directly connect with our time in Job. So let me give you a few of them that we've posted. So one of the things you're going to find is we have a reading plan for the book of Job. And so uh, what, we've, what we're going to do is, is, you know this, there are seven days in a week, right? Amen. All right, so six days out of the week, though, we're going to read a chapter a day, and on the last day, we'll rest or catch up if you missed one, all right? So it's, it's built for seven weeks, uh, every day of the week or six days a week, we read one chapter. Now, here's the cool thing. If we do this together, then that means by the end of our series, which is seven weeks long, we will finish the book of Job as we finish the series, So it's kind of a cool opportunity. I wanted to make it available to you. I'm going to be doing it. That reading plan is actually for you posted here. Another thing we've posted are several books and resources that we think might be helpful. Like I said, uh, this is a a book that's going to cause us to ask some questions. And so I wanted to provide maybe some resources if you're looking to go a little deeper in this book. And we've put several books. I've reviewed them, put links to them on on our site. Uh, the last thing, and then we'll, we'll move on, is um, uh, some, how many are visual people? All right, you'll like this. So on our website as well, we've posted a short, I believe it's 11-minute video. And what it does is it takes the 42 chapters of Job, and as best as it can, very articulate, I think it's an excellent video, it's condensed into 11 minutes. And it provides an incredible insight into way the way that we can look at Job as a whole. It's really helpful. I put it up on this page as well. So hear me, all of these are so that what, what we're going through in our, in our Bibles, regardless of where you are, regardless of your background, that you hopefully have the tools you need to go deeper into God's word. And so I hope that you will take advantage of those. If you don't, fine. No, it's okay. Um, you guys ready to dive in? All right. Let me pray for us, and then let's get started. God, thank you so much for your word. I thank you for this book. I thank you for the way that it proclaims very loudly that you are God. Help us to see you, know you, love you, see your gospel more deeply as a result of looking at your word today and for the rest of this 
series. And so we thank you. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, let me start with a little context uh, this morning. So Job took place a, by the way, it's a true story that took place a very, very, very long time ago. Uh, nothing in the book itself gives us like, this was written in XX year, doesn't do that. But there's clues in the book that lead us to think that this is one of the earliest books that we have, one of the oldest books that we have in our Bible. Uh, both Christian and non-Christian uh, scholars, as they look at this book, they dated a long time ago. Here's the cool thing about that. This book, for years, generation. After generation, this story has been told. This story has been preserved and told. And every time it's been told, it's been related to, because what we're going to talk about is timeless. And for generations, people have read these words and kind of in a way put themselves in Job's shoes. We're going to talk about that. Uh, Most likely, Job lived around, most think a little bit before, Abraham. So long, long time ago. Um, and so it's an old book. And not only, not only is this book stand the test of time because it is, in fact, God's word, which is always a thing that makes things stand the test of time, but it answers some of the, the deepest questions that we have. Some of the very deepest and most honest and timeless questions. As we read this, you are no doubt, you will be able to in some way, relate to either Job, relate to Job's friends. You're going to relate to this story. It's an incredible, incredible story. Um, Job was looking, all of the questions that we, that we wrestle with, Job was looking for answers, and what we're going to realize is that the answers he got was nothing what he expected. And in the same way, the answers that I get when I read, they're not what I was expecting. They're not what I was expecting. So if you have your Bibles, grab them. We're going to start just right off the bat in chapter 1. And while you're getting there, um, you're going to notice something about this book right, right away. It's a little long. It's a little long, and some of you are kind of worried because at Stone Oak, what we typically do is we take books and we walk through them verse by verse. Like that's kind of what we do here. So some of you are kind of trying to do some of the math and you're thinking, well, we are going to be in Job for six years. I just want to encourage you to relax. It's only going to take us five. No, I'm joking. We, we have a plan. We have a plan. We're going to get through this. Um, it's not going to take us four years. Uh, but before we read, I wanted to be, um, kind of lay out something that's kind of important to understand before we begin. Uh, this may sound really strange, but what you are reading determines how you read it. Okay. What you are reading determines how you read it. How many like English people, people, literary people? Okay, like four of us are really going to like this. But um, what you are reading determines how you're reading. You're going to read a history book different than you're going to read a poem. You're going to read a lyric differently than you would read a recipe. Make sense? What you're reading determines how you read it. Um, The different genres of literature should be read differently. This is especially important for us as we look at Job because what we're going to notice is our genre switches on us like that. 
We're going to start out chapters 1 and 2, and again at the end, are written as history. It's a story. You read it, and it reads like a story. It's in a paragraph. It's easy. We, I love reading that kind of stuff. But then what's going to happen is there's going to be a switch that happens in chapter 3, and it's going to turn into this rich and beautiful Hebrew poetry. Uh, this is why when you read it, you, you think, like, who talks like this, right? Like, it's, it's poetry. Um, this doesn't mean that this, that is any less true than the history. It just means that the author chose to communicate that truth through poetry instead of through narrative or through history. This is important because it, as I said, should affect the way that we read it. We're going to start today with the history. We're going to be in chapters 1 and 2. Uh, and... It makes sense, since that's true, that, that it would start with a little bit of a, of a historical setting behind the story. So right off the bat, it says, there was a man in the, a man in the land of Uz uh, whose name was Job. That man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Um, now, some of you are going to be really proud of me for this. I don't often include maps, but I'm going to include a map. If you would throw that up there. I did this because I want to show you something. Uh, this is most likely the land of Uz or Uz, however you, you say it, um, is most likely kind of Saudi Arabia, uh, Syria, uh, Jordan, that, that area. Notice, though, it's not Israel. It's not the promised land. This is, this is outside of that. So it's most likely what we see is modern Saudi Arabia. And so this verse gives us another important fact, and that is Job, he was blameless, he was upright, he feared God, he turned away from evil. Beautiful statements, right? You wish that this was said about me. I, I love this. It, it's, this is important, though. We're going to come back to it often. But um, Job was a great guy. Job was a great guy. In fact, Ezekiel in, a chapter, in chapter 14, yeah, calls Job, uh, along with Daniel and Noah, the most righteous men of all time. That's a statement, right? Job was a great guy. Not only was he a great guy, but he was also rolling. This guy was wealthy. Um, I don't have the conversion rate, as we're going to read, for cows and sheep and oxen and donkeys to U.S. dollars. But this man was a wealthy man. Uh, verse 3 says that he was the greatest of all the people in the East. Job was a great man. He was a wealthy man. Not only that, though, verses 4 and 5 give us a glimpse that not only was Job a good guy, not only was he a wealthy guy, but he was a pretty good parent. Um, verses 4 and 5, he loved God, he loved his kids, and Job would, would get up early, pray, make sacrifices for his kids just in case they did something stupid. Like, that's really cool. He would get up and he would pray. You know, he knows they're going to do something, so let's just pray for them. And that's what he did. We get a glimpse of Job's heart. He did this continually. So he's blameless, feared God, well thought of, wealthy, loved his kids, loves his family. That was Job. Now, verse 6 happens. Uh, unthinkable happens. And the, sh the scene shifts from, from Job and his life to this heavenly scene this heavenly courtroom uh, kind of scene, and it's intriguing. It gives us a glimpse into something really important, and I don't want to rush past this uh, too quickly. Before we read it, notice um, I want to kind of identify two characters that we have entering in our story that are kind of unique, and as you read it, you're like, what is going on there? The first 
we have the sons of God. So as we read this, we're going to read it here in a moment, but um, who are these guys? What are they doing? Presenting themselves before God. This is important. Um, when the Bible uses the language sons of God, it's referring, it's, by the way, it uses it in several places throughout our scripture. But when it refers to the sons of God, it's referring to um, beings that are created by God, hence sons, but that are not human, that are not human. Um, your Bible may translate this term as simply angels, um, angels. Uh, this is the heavenly scene, a heavenly council, a heavenly court that is depicted here. And this scene gives a glimpse of kind of like a, um, I want to say cabinet meeting that's taking place in heaven, right? Um, where these heavenly beings are coming and they're presenting themselves before God. They're submitting themselves before God. Now, among them, among this group, is an interesting, well, character number two. Um, someone who is called, a character called Satan, or the Satan. Uh, in he Hebrew, it literally means the accuser or the adversary. Um, we're not told, right, if, if, this, if Satan was a part of this heavenly group or if he just crashed the party. We're not told um, if he was supposed to be there or if he wasn't. But honestly, it feels a bit odd if he was crashing the party, in all honesty, because God's response is like, who let you in kind of deal. It's a little bit odd. Um, but our, the text doesn't say, but, but most scholars believe that Satan was actually a part of this group. That it's, it, it was a heavenly cabinet where picture like a president is asking his secretary to give an account. It's like, what have you been doing? Give me a report. And it's like, tell us where you've been, what you've done. Either way, we're not told, but um, either way, it shows us something very important about God, and that is this. God is sovereign. God is sovereign. There are things, supernatural things, that are supernatural for the good and for the evil, but no matter what, God is in control of it all. God is sovereign over it all. He has dominion over it all. And that's what this court scene shows us. And this is important for us to see. So last year, we walked through the book of Ephesians together. Uh, it, specifically in Ephesians 6, we talked about spiritual warfare. If you weren't here for that, I encourage you to go back and, and check that out. But one of the things that we, that we noticed, that we realized about ourselves, is that um, although most of us have a head knowledge that Satan exists, that angels are real and demons and all of this, we, we have this head knowledge that they all exist. Um, although we would intellectually consent that, yes, there is spiritual warfare, uh, many of us live our lives as though none of that exists. Like, none of it exists. We just live in the here and now natural. We live as though we don't believe this. And so we come to this text and we read this scene and we like angels and Satan. And this, this has to be figurative, right? The reason I bring this up. Remember what genre we are reading. We are not reading a figurative story. We are reading a historical account. This happened, actually happened. And if you remember... In, in Ephesians 6, it says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in, heavenly, in the heavenly places. Church, the supernatural is real. It 
Israel, Satan, Israel, and he really does want you to be drawn away from, from God. That, that this is real. Like, this is real. This scene in Job gives us a glimpse into a world that, that we're not often aware of. And for a moment, I want to I say something that might help us because it helped me. Uh, several years ago, I had a, a professor that told me a story, and it stuck with me. I cannot get it out of my mind. It stuck with me. Um, he told a story of a train ride that he took through South America. Um, it was beautiful through the forest. This train, though, would go under the mountains for long periods of time. So on this train ride uh, through this beautiful forest, most of it was spent in a dark train, right? Because you would just, under the mountain, windows are dark, and all you know for the majority of your ride is this train. It's dark, and well, it has lights on and everything, but the windows are dark, and all you know is what you see. And then all of a sudden, most of the time with no warning, this train goes pop out of the mountain, light floods the windows, and you look outside and you realize you are in one of the most beautiful places. Colors, greens, and blues, it's just beautiful. You look out the windows. And you're, you kind of take it all in, and then again, often without warning, back into the mountain, black, right? Back into the mountain, the windows go black. Our lives are often a lot like this. Our lives are often a lot like this, in that we spend most of our time, most of our lives in the train. What we see is what we see. There's nothing wrong with it. It's just this is our world. We see this train, and we spend most of our life right there, and we don't fully we know about, but we don't fully know the world outside. But every once in a while, we pop out of the mountain and we get this glimpse of whew, there's so much more than what we see and experience every day. There's so much more. It's so beautiful. It's here. And then whew, back into the mountain again we go. Um, this is our reality, and in a sense, Job 1, 6 through 12 is us popping out of the mountain and seeing a beautiful scene that is all around us that, that we don't often get a glimpse of. But for a moment, we pop out and we see it. Now listen to this. Verse 6, now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came among, also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, uh, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. Now, verse 8, take this one in. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? What? That there is none like him on the earth. A blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. So it's almost as though Satan's job is to wander around looking for those who are genuine in their faith. And he was wandering around and, and God here brings up Job. Have you considered him? Brings him up. It's, it's almost as if, it's not that he's taunting him, but it, there's this like, have you considered him? Have you considered him? A blameless fears God, turns from evil. Now listen to this, verse 9. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? 
You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to his face. Satan says, you know, all of that may be true, but, but God, he loves you because of that. Job follows you. Job serves you because of the good things you've given him. But if you take those away from him, not only will he not fall, he will curse you to your face. This is what Satan, Satan says. It's almost as though he says, God, Job's love, Job loves your stuff. He loves your stuff, but not you. If you take away your stuff, he's going to leave you. That's almost what he is saying. And in a, listen to God's response. It'll confuse you. Um, and the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now, from this moment, Job's life will never be the same, ever. Uh, verse 13. Now there was a day when this, his sons um, and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, this is where the snowball starts. Um, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside him. Keep in mind, this is his wealth. These aren't just because he loves animals. This is his wealth. Um, and the donkeys were feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the, uh, the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. It's like waking up and realizing you're bankrupt. It's all been stolen from you. You're checking. Your savings gone. Um, in verse 16, while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and came on a raid on the camels and took them and struck them down, the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Things are unraveling quick for Job. While they were still speaking, while they were still speaking, it just unraveling quick. His, his people gone, his wealth gone, it gets worse much worse, verse 18, while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house and it fell upon the young people and they are dead. Imagine the weight of that conversation. Um, and I alone have escaped to tell you his children who he loved dearly, who he prayed for daily, gone, all of them. Absolute devastation. For a moment, and this is really an unfair question, can you try to put yourself in those shoes as you're getting those progress reports, just one by one by one? It's not even fair. You can't even begin, I don't think, to put your play, yourself in that place. But one day you lose everything. You're, you're, you're bankrupt. Your savings checking, gone. Your beautiful family, your beautiful children, gone. Where would you be in that moment? Where would you be in this, in this moment? We can't even grasp it, but God, is this what I signed up for? God, I thought you loved me. I thought you loved me. I, I would be... Throwing up Bible verses at him, 
Like, you work all things together for the good, right, God? This is not good. How can this be your, your will, your plan? How on earth can any of this make sense? This is weighty. This is heavy as we, as we read this, which brings me to a really important point before we continue. Unfortunately, the message that we can sometimes hear when it comes to following Jesus can sound a little bit like this. Come to Jesus and your life will be good. Come to Jesus and things are going to be awesome. They're going to work out for you because he wants to bless you. Come to Jesus and and you're going to be healthy. He's going to bless you financially. You're going to be, man, it's going to be good. Come to Jesus and life will be good. Um, Without realizing it, here's the message that we get. Come to God and you get God's gifts in the here and now. If you come to God, I promise you, you get all this stuff. That's kind of the message that we, that we hear and that we can often communicate. Um, church, it's not true. It is not true. And in fact, the good news is better than that. But it is not true. When you come to Jesus, it's not a promise that you get all of God's things here and now and that you're going to be happy, healthy, and wealthy now. That's not it. The promise is when you come to Jesus, you get Jesus forever. You get Jesus. That's the promise. The promise is not come to Jesus and you'll never suffer or struggle again. The promise is you get Christ. Like, that's it. Consider this. Jesus had the ability to offer his disciples anything. He could have offered them wealth, fame, fortune. He could have offered an easy life. He could have offered them anything. But do you remember Jesus' call? Come, take up your cross and follow me. I bid you to come and die to yourself daily. This was not a very attractive call to the gospel. I mean, I, it, you, Jesus, I mean, you could have at least told him about the Father's love and the hope and the peace. No, it was come and die. Take up your cross, lay yourself down, and when you do, you will see and experience the goodness of God. It was come and die. You will find life when you lose it. That was his call. And if you're here, by the way, and you have been told this, that if you come to God, things are going to work out, things are going to be good. If you give, then God will give back, and you're going to grow your accounts, and it's going to be amazing. If you've been told this, I, I sincerely want to apologize. I want to say that I'm sorry because... You don't have to be living life long enough to know that that falls apart. And as you navigate both the ups and the downs of life, I apologize if you've had to do it with confusion, wondering if you still are loved by God when you're going through difficult and challenging things. This is not the gospel. This is not the gospel. Um, Consider this, James 2, or James 1, verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. How about this? Peter echoes it. 1 Peter 1, 6. 
In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that, or so that the tested genuineness, genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes when it's uh, tested by fire, may be, found, or may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When we come to Jesus, we get the greatest treasure in all of the world, and that is Jesus himself. That is what we get. And when we do that, there's something funny that happens. The struggles, the trials, the hard things, those can kind of, those kind of become the tools. That as these verses say, make us perfect, lacking in nothing. These struggles become the thing that we stand on. And it's what gives us the ability to say this. All right, Job 1, back to Job 1.20. Then Job arose and tore his robe, shaved his head. This man is broken, but listen to what he did. And fell on the ground and worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all of this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. This man was broken, hurting, his pain was real, yet he falls on the ground and he worships. It's, it's, remember, Satan says, he just loves your stuff, God. If you take it away, he's going to curse you. What happened when he took it away? Job had, he chose to worship and bless God. That plan did not work. And before we go for, further, Job is not a superhuman, okay? He's not a superhero, he was a real man, and in fact, over the next several weeks, you are going to get a very clear picture of Job's humanness, his humanity. You're going to see it loud and clear. Job was not a superman, um, but Job's suffering didn't change the simple fact that God is God no matter what. No matter the times that we can't see it with our limited perspective, because the fact that God is God is not contingent on the amount of gifts that I currently enjoy. God is God and he's way beyond, way bigger than just everything is awesome. Way, way bigger. Now, unfortunately for Job, and I'll go quicker through this, the disaster doesn't end there. Uh, it picks up again in chapter 2. Same scene, sons of God, Satan presenting themselves to God. And again, um, he was wandering around, uh, Satan was wandering around on the earth, and his previous attack didn't work, right? Um, so again, God says, have you considered my servant Job, right? He's blameless. He's kind of bragging on him. Satan's response was to accuse Job again. He only follows you because you protect his life. Like you took away his stuff, but imagine if you attacked, if his, if his health was attacked, like he's going to curse you then. Take away his stuff. Okay, he, he somehow went through that. But if you allow his health to be attacked. And God again sends him out and says, go, have at it, only spare his life, which, by the way, shows God's sovereignty and control. He said, oh, if you're going to attack, attack in my bounds. But Satan goes. Verse 7, so Satan went out from the presence of the Lord, struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, and he took a piece of pottery, this is beautiful, uh, broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. That's vivid. So sores, head to toe, sitting there, broken, 
completely broken, lost his, his wealth, his possessions, his, his children, and now his own health. He, again, shaves his head, tears his clothing. This man is broken. For a moment, as gross as this is, visualize that. Getting delivered this news and now just sitting in it and being broken in it. That's, that's Job wondering, if you are good, God, how can this be? If you are truly good, how can this be? Uh, I won't ask you to raise your hand, but how many have asked that same question? If you're good, God, how can this be? That's Job. At least Job had an encouraging and uplifting wife, right? <laughs> well, no. Verse 9, his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. Honey, here's my advice. Curse God and die. Just terrible. I know. Thank you. Thanks, babe. Appreciate that. Just terrible comforter for, for Job. And I love the way early theologians refer to his wife. Uh, Augustine calls her the devil's assistant. That's awesome. Calvin calls her Satan's tool. She's a poor, poor girl. She's famous, infamous. Um, but I hope no one ever can refer to me as Satan's tool. But verse 10 says, But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Mm. Uh, shall we receive good from God, and, and shall we not receive evil? And all this Job did not sin with his lips. And all this he didn't, because his relationship with God was not contingent on God's things. On God's blessings here and now. He says, you give and you take away. Remember, he's not a superhero. He's not a legend. He's a man. A real man. Um, for a moment, I want you to ask one question to yourself, and that is this. Um, are you a follower of Christ? And in your mind, I really want you to answer this. If you said yes, why? 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 I really want you to answer that in your mind. Why? Because hear me, if your answer to that question is anything that can be taken away from you, you have missed it. Because if the story of Job teaches us anything, it's that things come and go. People come and go. Blessings and good times and bad times, they will come and they will go. But God remains. And God is God even when we can't see it. So why? Why is it that I'm a Christian? I follow Christ because he is God. He is worthy. He saved me, set me free. He is king. He is Lord. That is why I'm a Christian. And Job understood that God is still God, even when he can't fully wrap his mind around what he sees in front of him. If we're honest, um, as we read this, it should bother us. We should wrestle with this a little bit. There should be questions that come up. And welcome to Job. Welcome to our series for the next several weeks. As we wrestle with this together. Um, but before we end our time, I want to end with this this morning. Before we go any further in this book, I want to lay out a foundation for us that if we do not get this, we don't do the book of Job justice. We have to get this. 
Because often we try to put ourselves, and which is rightfully so, we put ourselves in Job's shoes and we ask ourselves all kinds of questions of, could I be that faithful? All of that. If we don't have this foundation, I think we, we end up in some places that we shouldn't be. All right. Christian, you have three things that Job never had. You have three things that Job never had. Number one, you have the spirit of God. You have the Holy Spirit. As Jesus died for you, completed everything on the cross for you, as he was going up, he says, um, I am sending the Holy Spirit. It will come upon you. It will give you power. It will equip you. It will strengthen you. And in Acts 2, that happened. God's people became indwelled by God's Spirit. Unbelievable, huge. Today, Christian, you are indwelled by the Spirit of God. I don't know if you realize it, but the same power that raised Jesus indwells you. It indwells you, meaning you are, I'll put it this way. I asked you, asked you to put yourself in Job's shoes. That's really not fair. Because you will never be alone. You will never be left alone. I don't know if you've known anyone who has gone through an extreme personal tragedy and you try to relate to them and you're like, I could not be as strong as they are. And they, they, it seems like every one of them says, it's not my strength. And when I was weak, he was, was strong. No greater example than I can think of personally than my cousin who was very young when she got diagnosed with cancer. She's not a superhero, but I saw her do superhero things through God's spirit in her, giving her strength to walk with boldness and strength. You are never alone. You are never alone. You have the spirit of God. Second, you have the word of God. Now, um, this book is beautiful, rich, and full, and we get the privilege of having it. Job, as I said very early, did not have this. It's almost as though we hold the end of the story. We know what happens, and so when we face trials, it's, it's oh, God told us that was going to happen, and not only that, God said he's going to be with us through it, and not only that, he said we're going to have victory through it. It's like we hold the good news Job did not have that. You have this. Christian, you have the Spirit of God living in you. And you have God's very word to you, telling you how this is going to go down. That is beautiful. That is amazing. Lastly, you have the completed work of the Son of God. Now, I know I'm jumping ahead, but it's important because we're laying a foundation, right? Verse, um, or chapter 9, verse 32. Job, in one of his rants, he's miserable here, is ranting to his friends. This is what he says. For he is not a man as I am that I might answer him and that we should come to trial together. There is no arbiter between us who may lay his hand on us both and be kind of that bridge. Let him take his rod away from me and let not dread of him terrify me. Then I will speak without fear of him, for I am not so in myself. So Job is saying, if only there was a mediator, if only there was someone to stand, to bridge the gap between me 
and God. If only, you don't have to turn here, 1 Timothy 2, 5. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Jesus Christ is your mediator, and you have no room for fear. No room for for fear. This is amazing, church, because if you are here and you're dealing with this fear of, is God ever going to be pleased with me? Is God ever going to accept me? Is there anyone to plead on my behalf? Yes, Jesus Christ is your mediator. Not only that, and I'm going to close with this, Hebrews 4 tells us, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. Listen to this. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weakness, but one who in every respect was tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find help in time of need. Not only is Jesus Christ the mediator, the one who stands, bridges the gap, but our Bible tells us that our mediator sympathizes with us in our weakness. That he's not, ah, when will they get it right? No, he sympathizes with us in our weakness and he bridges the gap between us and the Father. This is good news. This is the gospel and it's the foundation of everything we do here. You have something that Job never had. His spirit, his word, and you have his son. You are never alone. So as we walk through this book and we put ourselves in these shoes, we don't do it alone. Let me pray for us. God, thank you. As we begin looking at this beautiful story, we pray that you speak. You show us yourself and your beauty. Give us courage that we are never alone. Let us see how beautiful it is that we have a mediator that stands between us that we've been indwelled by your spirit and that we get to hold your word. Change us, God, from the inside out. In Jesus' name, amen.